Join me as we skip to the end of a book. Not the ending of the story, but further in the back, almost by the back cover, The Acknowledgements. I've always been fascinated by The Acknowledgements and find myself asking questions I wish I had the answers to. Are the people they thanked still in their lives? Do they regret not including someone? What's the meaning behind this inside joke or story? Well, now I finally get the answers to my questions. In this podcast, I'll talk to the authors and explore the acknowledgements. So flip to the back of the book with me and let's start there. Well, I am so happy today to welcome Rini to the Acknowledgements Podcast. Hello, Rini. Hello, and it's a great pleasure to be here. For you too. I'm so excited to chat with you today and talk to you about the book that I read, Bangalore Detectives Club, and some of your other works as well. So what I'd love to start with is the book that I read. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise or synopsis of the Bangalore Detectives Club? Yeah, so I live in Bangalore in India, and and I am an ecologist, so that's my day job. But as I was doing my ecology work, a lot of my work is on the history of the city. And so I decided to send a historical book in 1920s Bangalore, which is really a wonderful time to talk about because of the time in between the world wars, the classic golden age of history fiction, right? And the premises, it's all, it's centered around a very strong character, a 19-year-old woman who just got married, moved to Bangalore, lives in a wealthy family with her husband, but likes mathematics, likes dragging her husband's Ford, like swimming in a sally, is always, she's not a she's not a woman who can be easily contained within the confines of what society wants her to do in 1920s bank. But she's from a wealthy, privileged family, so she should be doing charitable deeds, socializing, taking care of her house. And she does that, but she also wants to do more and make more of herself. So the book starts with her, with her husband attending function at Century Club, which is a very interesting club in Bangalore where the British and the Indians meet. And she stumbles across a corpse. And being the bright woman that she is, she gets drawn into to solve the murder and uses the library to find out about fingerprinting and read some favorite Sherlock Holmes books and Miss Molly books and a bunch of other things and eventually ends up solving this murder. Along the way, she pulls in, it's called the Bangalore Detectives Club. So she pulls in a motley cast of characters, which is an ex-prostitute, a milk boy, the delivery boy who supplies the milk, her husband, Ramu, who's very supportive. Though a bit bemused at his wife, he can't quite figure out, but he's very supportive. Then was he an inquisitive backed house neighbor, auntie, because you always have to have an inquisitive and we can make everything better. And Inspector Ismail, who's very fond of her. The only person who's not supportive, and they always have to be in a client, the ointment, is her mother-in-law, Bargani, because she feels that too much sleuthing makes a woman's brains go soft, and she doesn't quite like this public notoriety that her daughter was bringing with her. So that's the book. I love it. And I have so, so many questions for you. So this was a very special book to read because I actually also read this as part of a book club. So I have a few questions from my book club members as well but I'm going to start with mine. So when jumping to acknowledgements, one of the very first sentences you wrote was that Kaveri and Ramu first dropped into my head in the summer of 2007 when very insistently demanded that I write a book about her. So tell me about that. I was sitting in my mother's house surrounded by a pile of archival documents in Bangalore and we had just been speaking. My mother is in her late 80s and so this is then 2007 a while back but she'd been speaking to me about the strong women in her life 
happened. Her grandmother, who was born in the, the 19th century, 20, what would it be? Yeah, 18th, the 19th century, late 19th century. And we were just talking about women and their lives and how they could do certain things, but there were many things that she couldn't, that they couldn't do. And I was looking at all these interesting archival documents about strong women who were coffee entrepreneurs, but also women who couldn't do things that they wanted to do. And I guess all of this came together. But it was, as someone said to me, it was a visitation. So I think she visited. Yeah, it was a visitation. And she really dropped into my form. I knew everything about her. Her name was different. Her name was when she first came. And somewhere along the way, I don't know why her name changed to Kaveri. She always had a partner on her with her. So it was always drama. But except in, when I first visualized her, she wasn't yet married. And they had a love story where they discovered each other and fell in love. But that wasn't plausible. In the 1920s, she was 19. She would have been married. So, yeah. So I decided to make them married, but discovering each other in an arranged marriage. But yes, she dropped it fully formed into my head. And she was very insistent that I write. So it took me away. I finally got the book accepted by a publisher in 2020. And so that long journey, I think the three different, completely different blocks, which I threw words started all over again. And even after I got the book taken by a publisher, I also wrote a plot and changed the words. Also, I had revisions because it's my first time writing. I've written, of course, there's a lot of nonfiction. But it's my first time writing a fiction book. So, so that's so interesting. So you even say, like, it, it took me 13 years to get there. You write in your acknowledgments. What made you stick with her, with Rhi and her story? Because it's a fun life here, right? I mean, I've had a very intense day during a while. I have my mom who lives with me. I have a family, teenager. My dad was trending through when I started thinking of the book. I and mean, my children born when they be sleeping up. They slide into the first thing. So something about it stopped for a couple of years. And then something would obsess me about it. So I would write a little bit more than I find. And then I keep reading. That's what they told me. And then a strong feminist young woman and she much more so in me. She started discussing the book with me. She always told me, keep coming back to this, there's something in this. I think all of this kept to the light, but I also think there's going to be such a compelling character. I feel like I know her. Exactly. So she's very And I love that part of it where you're talking about how with your daughter, like she wasn't even born yet, you started it, but then she was at an age where she actually could read it and give you feedback. I love that part. There is feedback. I print this out. Oh, my husband is on the computer. But they're my first readers. They're the ones who see the really rough and they see horrible drafts. They're the ones yeah. that work with anyone else. And she gives me the most hilarious points because, of course, characters come back, but their names have changed, their details have changed. And she's the one who picks all of this together and says, I don't think I would do this. It's been great fun now. as a way to sort of do stuff with her. It's been fabulous. I love it. And also in your acknowledgments, you talk about your mother and specifically in about family stories, reminiscing, recipes. So talk to me about that. Is you also say giving view into the lives of women and such. Yeah. So what you get, especially if you're writing a book on a place like India, is a paucity of written material to research from. Right? What you have is administrative records, and I have a wealth of those, but they're all from the British administrator's point of view. You know, this lake, this was this road was done, whatever. So details like that. Or you have files and records and diaries of British administrators or English women who are residents, and you get to know one. But how do the Indians feel and live? And you don't have that. And especially Indian women, you might still find some men writing, but you're almost have nothing by women. Then you stop most to imagine the women and that's what I wanted to be very much with. Into the kitchens and the drawing rooms and the gossip sessions and also the women who are like right? women who are wealthy and their homes but also the ex-prostitute or all kinds of other women that she thought he was sick. Now, now that I got from my mom, especially the wealthier women, talk to her, talk to her aunts or grandmothers, talk to her grandmothers. Mm-hmm. But her local, she was a poor husband, she worked for the women. He insisted to wear muscle women. She went talking about meaning. 
of my mind, you know, and she's speaking was a wild man over the middle of the night, she would get up them and disappear somewhere, people would take the forest and come back a few hours later having delivered the baby and then have a bath, actually purify herself and get back to make the house for the wife of the very man. And sometimes women try to find places for themselves to do things of their own. It's something that's always fascinated me. And hearing all these stories in the first chapter, right? And my husband's aunt who just passed away, she was 96. She used to swim in And so these stories of women is what we like. And it's interesting you even talking about it and her relationship. So, so one of the questions that one of my book club members had was she wanted to know about the models for the relationship between Barry and Rambo. Was was it your parents, your own marriage, completely fictional, or was it inspired by a couple that you know? That's a lovely question. That's a bits and pieces of everything. The reality was that, so I, like I said, there are stories of many strong women, the coffee entrepreneur, the journalist, they all come in in different forms in book two. Women who ran all kinds of industries and other kinds of empires, women who fought for suffrage. But the reality was all of them had to have one supportive man in there. And often it was women who were widows. And so their father turned out to be supportive. And even sometimes the mother or the sisters or the other family members weren't, but the father was very supportive. And so you'd usually find that. And I knew to balance that element of reality, I had to have someone supportive. And I did not want her to be a widow. I wanted her to have this strong, supportive partner. I don't have this partner. So part of it was it really came fully fledged that that relationship between them was there. But it also was the realism that she could only do what she did because her mother-in-law was against it. If Rama was also against it, it would have been very hard for her. Now, where that came from, I would say bits and pieces. Of course, I have a... Um, very fortunate to have a really supportive husband who completely gets me. But what would she have had in those days? And I know a lot of couples who had supportive husbands in many ways. Maybe they wanted to do something else. It obviously was a detection, but it could have been anything. It could have been studying for an exam. It could have been an art project that they wanted to take on. It could have been moving somewhere to a city to stay there alone today so that the children could go to school. And I've seen a lot of these supportive husbands. In fact, my father taught me how to cook and my uncle was one of the best cooks I knew. So there were men of that generation. My father was born in 1930. So, you know, there were men of that generation, not too far away from Kaveh, who were also the cooks who taught their wives how to cook when they were. So there was bits and pieces, I'd say, pulled together from one of this. I love that. I love that they were, they came, that couple and the inspiration came from a lot of different places. So another question I received, and this was a question that I had as well, but was really asking about the relationship between your nonfiction and your academic writing and kind of moving to this fiction writing. What was that like? What's different about the two? What's similar about the two? There's a lovely question. I'd say there's a lot of a lot that I can pick on from my experience with writing nonfiction that translates very well to fiction. For instance, discipline. I can sit comfort with writing discipline. I can sit for an hour or two and I plan my week very well. And I know that if I don't get my writing time done during the two hours I have marked for it, I'm not going to get it done because there's a lot of other stuff to do, right? I've also got a very thick skin, which is very useful for a fiction writer because academics is about, I mean, the number of research, I've written up close to 200 research papers. Each time you send it to anonymous peer review. And so you get sometimes really, I mean, even now, because nobody knows who you are, no one knows your track, but they can see really awful things. And you pick the good out of it and you use that to strengthen your right and you'll leave the website. And every academic has a thick skin. It's part of the process. So it's very useful to read a good interviews because I read all my reviews. The part that I think can improve my writing and I leave and I'm very happy and appreciative with stuff. But I'm also appreciative of the readers who don't like it, decided to write it. I think all of this really helps in terms of that. 
What is different is I had to switch off the nonfiction voice that's always making me write linear, write simple, write with clarity, write down to 600 words, whatever my word count is for that piece. Right? Because if I write a few extra words, I know the editor is going to cut because there's no place in the magazine or the book and it'll be the wrong 100 words or the wrong 20 words. And so I have to switch that voice off so that I can make sure that my fiction voice flows in a very different way. I can use the poetic, occasional poetic word or the descriptions, the the slowness, the complex plots. And that's very different. So I make it a point not to write during the middle of my workday. I mean, not that I find that too, but what I have to do is either on the weekends when I write my fiction book or in the morning is best because I haven't yet written nonfiction. And if I've written nonfiction during the day, I have to stop and maybe write Kaveh after midnight and after I've taken a break for three, four hours and done something else because I still find that different. So just separating it, yeah, having two different worlds. Nonfiction after fiction. I can't write fiction after nonfiction. Oh, interesting. Yes. And so tell me more then, you know, about your day job and your academic life and how that also influenced this fiction book. I'm an ecologist and I've worked on issues of India's forests and cities for close to 30 years now. I run a climate center at my university, so we set up academic programs like any university does, train students, but also do our own research. It's a lot of research administration as well as administration of climate change work and working with students. On my own research, I do a lot of nonfiction writing for the general public on issues like trees in Indian cities. I have a new book coming out on water in Indian cities and the ecological history of many Indian cities, including backlog. So I'm usually looking at that kind of material and trying to put that together. And one of the things I am always fascinated with is how much Bangalore has changed over the last century. It was once India's garden city, a beautiful colonial city, of course, but a beautiful one with tree lined avenues, boulevard, lakes, and just a gorgeous place. Lots of biodiversity, and all of that has moved. The city has grown, of course, and it's lost a lot of the trees. It's nature, it's become a city full of concrete. What I'm doing in the book, I guess, is for me a return to nostalgia, a return to a lovely time, a different time, a time when things moved more slowly. It was a very bad, very interesting city in many ways because it was a very cosmopolitan city. For the 1920s, it always had more people who were from the outside than people from the city. And so it very well this amalgamation of caste, class, religion, people, people from all over the world would come and stay and it was a welcoming city. And so I want to bring out elements of all of this, how the city's ecology shaped, how people thought, how the city was a welcoming place, because to me it speaks to a lot of issues of Indian cities today. How we become more rigid, how we become, we stop speaking to people who are not like us. So I wanted to have Kaveri cut through these different, let separate communities of of different kinds. But also a lot of my work is inspired by Eleanor Ostrom, whom I worked with for several years, and she was the first woman to win an economics Nobel who worked in communities and how communities work together. And so I'm very interested in writing a book that is not your typical hero story, where is the singer hero who works ahead on her own sleuthing and getting things done. But she actually works in a group and anything in her life gets done with communities, not by individuals. And so that's something in my day job. I really look at how communities come together to save ecology, whether it's in cities or forests. And that's what I wanted to bring out. That's why it's a Bangalore Detectives Club. It's very much a club of women coming together and some men. And they're forming a strong group 
and solving things together as such. Where did this interest in ecology start for you? So I'd say as a young child, I'm a city child, and my parents used to take me for a lot of long walks in the city on weekends, and in very different ways. My father and I would just go on these long walks, and we'd trap busily along the paths, find some deer to feed or something else, and just walk and look at trees and talk along the way. My mom was a botanist and never could buy, which was one of the greatest regrets in life, but always loved to transfer that knowledge onto me. So we would take, we would go very slow ambles through the same places and take apart leaves and fruits and study the structure of one and bring it home and cut it to pieces and look at it through a magnifying glass and all of that stuff. So these two very different experiences, I'd say. I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that's what shaped the interest in ecology. And I'll share with you personally that reading this book came at a time where I was finding all of these books written by South Asian authors and with South Asian Indian characters. And it's made such a difference in making me feel connected to the things that I read. So I, I had to share that with you because that's made such a difference because I grew up not having a lot of characters in books that looked like me or had my same life experience. So reading a book where I'm there's little things, especially around the food with the they're talking about blood and things. I'm like, oh, wait, just a small thing like that, having that connection is so meaningful. So I'm so appreciative that you wrote this book. And I would love to know what's coming next is the Bangalore Detectives Club. They're continuing, right? There's a new book out. And so tell us about that. And then what's coming after that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the second book, which is out is Murder and Moon. And the sort of the backdrop is that is, of course, in book one, like I said, her relationship with her mother-in-law is the one star point. And immediately get her out of the place by one third of the book. She's having an investigation. So she's off with a narcissistic relative factor. But you can't do that forever. And one thing you realize in India, especially in India of the 1920s, is you don't just marry your husband, you marry the whole family. And she has to figure out what she's going to do with this mother-in-law. So that's the backdrop. Her relationship with her mother-in-law isn't going to go so we're getting better. But it starts with actually that is Kaveri's mother-in-law actually pulling her into an investigation because she has a cousin whom she's very fond of, Shanti, who runs a mill with her husband. And they're finding an embezzlement in the so a lot of money is disappearing and they think it might be their son-in-law to be but they don't want to call in the police because if it isn't him and the marriage breaks up then it's going to be disastrous and so they call him in because she knows the family she's not but they can't get her in she's already become famous as a detective so they get her in during a time of the lunar eclipse blood moon the red moon and that's a time which is supposed to be so unauspicious in Indian culture because you see that the demon who are eating the bone and so it's a really it's a time of ill luck and no one's out on the streets so Kaveri was not so superstitious is willing to come to the mill and investigate. And of course, she stumbles on a murder. So that's how that book starts. And this time, the club is much stronger as women of all kinds. And the Kaveri is teaching them how to read and write because many of these women are, like I said, some from privileged families, some from poor families. None of them know how to read. So that's really the book. It lets you investigate issues of religious fundamentalism, much more on the independence movement. And women's suffrage comes in and plays a huge role here. I love how you have this story that's about this, this group of women that are coming together that are very different from each other in many ways, but then also bring in some of this learning and history and all. So I, I love that you do that. And what are you imagining now for the future of Kaveri and the Bangalore Detectives Club? Do they Kaveri. keep going? I'm a third book right now, which is the next of the Bangalore Circus. And so the circus comes to town a little while before Edward Prince of Yes, the very notorious Edward comes to India. He's in India by the end of 1921 and it's greeted with riots in Bombay. And then he comes to Mice in January of 1922. And the, the king of Mice is very keen that his visit goes off smoothly. So 
Kaga, it starts with Kaga being invited to the circus and there's a mysterious magician who's disappeared from stage in the middle of the night. And she's trying to find out what happened. She stumbles out on another murder. But all of this seems tied into the fact that the Indian independence movement is planning something to protest in Mysore and Bangalore against the prince's visit. And there's also something going on because, of course, that's the time that Gandhi is asking for civil disobedience and non-cooperation, but peaceful, non-violent. But there's also another faction that said, look, this isn't working. We've been trying to get the British. It's after Jalian Bhan, the massacre in 1919. General Dyer just butchered a lot of close to a thousand Indians, mowing them down with bullets when they were protesting against the British. So these people are saying we need to combat this with violence. So now here's the protest. There seems to be something going on for the principal visit. Is that going to be violent or non-violent? Is it going to be? And there's some criminal activity going on in the background. Are people using to engage in criminal activity? Because it's a really good time. Some chaos and confusion are going on. It's a good time for thieves too. But if Kavit lets the thieves get away with what they plan, then the reputation of the independence movement is at stake. So there's a lot, much more going on in this book, much more complexity. And I'm quite excited about it. It also gives me a chance to dig into the independence movement because there are all these flavors. We think of it again as one linear story. One thing happened. But of course, it's not. There were many. It could have gone in multiple different ways and trying to explore about that. And then, of course, magic. All this magic. So it's great. I love this. You have so many ideas that are spanning so many pieces. So where, like, what kinds of books do you read? And what are some of your influences for the things that you're writing? A lot of different kinds, but now a lot of historical fiction. I mean, some of my authors and the favorite South Asian writers you're talking about, Jatha Amin Khan. I'm really grateful to them because I think they paved the way for people reading much more widely about these and they're just wonderful people who are very supportive of others writing I have to say them for sure I love Katrina McPherson and Reese Powell because I love their characters in complex women in the 1920s and that's something but of course the classics the Schmapel the Silva yeah these are all just authors that I love I was reading reading Lord Peter Wimsey and yeah looking at the women he interacts with in his life so yeah all of these writers I think classic golden age what about on the non-fiction end are you working on it yeah so I have a book on water in Indian cities with a colleague, Seema Mondoli, and we wrote another book, another couple of books together. But we write popular books. So the idea is to grab the person who reads but may not have read or thought as much about Indian ecology. Right? We're trying to get out, basically get outside preaching up to the choir, which I think is the challenge we always face. And so in these cities and canopies, which was one of my previous books with Seema, we targeted the, just the polite streets that doesn't necessarily know a lot. This one is on water and it has a, we've had fun again with it. So we have chapters on water monsters and magic beasts. We have chapters of, we have a chapter called Tinker Tail and Mapper Fire, which is on the, these explorers that mapped rivers in the 1920s and had to face some of them were killed, some of them were in prison, but escaped and managed to map these rivers. And we have the ecology of the issues of equity in Indian cities and the issues of climate change. So this is a book called Shades of Blue, Connecting the Drops in Indian Cities. I think we're to publish that in September. So we're at right now editing Kaveri Book Tree and proofreading the Shades of Blue book. Oh, so you're just a little busy. I'm still a little busy, yes. But it's a great way to be busy, I have to say. Yes. Surrounded by books and words, right? One thing I have to ask you about, because I think I saw it on your website, is talking about how you live in a home filled with maps. Tell me about that. A lot of the work I do is with satellite remote sensing and then with mapping. And then I got very interested with all in old maps. So actually, I don't know if you could see it from this, but at the back of the wall, there are a lot of maps of old Bangalore and from the 1890s onwards. And that's something I really love. I have maps of different parts of India, some old, some new, and I'm looking at maps all the time. So you'll see every book opens with a map. They end with recipes, of course, because I also love old recipes, but they open with a map where you can see where it moves around, how all the landmarks what the 
it looked like in those days. Love it. Thank you so much, Rini. This was such a great way to get to know you and your books and look forward to keep following Kaveri on all her adventures. Thank you. I just I enjoyed this very much and I loved your shit. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for getting curious about the acknowledgements and remember to read from cover to cover. Check out the acknowledgements on Facebook, Instagram, or theacknowledgements.com. There you'll find more information on the books and authors that I talk about here.